This morning we're looking at the life and ministry of another Puritan named Thomas Goodwin. Born in 1600 and went home to glory in 1679. We commence with an interesting comment by Peter Lewis. Peter Lewis was the pastor of the Cornerstone Church in Nottingham in England for 46 years. He died a few months ago in the month of May. But in his book, The Genius of Puritanism, which is only small but very telling book, he quotes this, or writes this, It is questionable whether Christians can ever look for the regeneration of the world before they seek the reformation of the church. If we are horrified at the state of the world in our generation, can we be less anxious about the state of the church within that world? If the light that is in the world be darkness, how great is that darkness? Now that is a topic that we could spend hours on because we're concerned to minister to the world but maybe we need to minister to the church as well. That's what he's getting at. The church is going through deep times, but it always has. There's, there's never been a time in my awareness when we could say everything's great in the church, but God is Lord. He is king of the church. He is the supreme one who guides. And so it's to him that we have to look. Things will never be perfect not according to our opinion anyway. So we keep trusting. But Peter Lewis's comment is worth thinking about. I haven't included the 17th century monarchs, musicians and composers uh, this morning, and uh, nor comments about the great ejection. We looked at all of that last week, but we'll come back to it again next week. So you'll have to return. Thomas Goodwin was born near Yarmouth in Norfolk, Norfolk to Richard and Catherine Goodwin who sought to train their son for the ministry. Now that strikes me as unusual but what they're saying is that from an early age these parents were concerned that their little boy become a preacher of the gospel. Uh, how it worked out I don't know. But he's been described as having a tender conscience. Thomas, from the age of six, had vivid impressions of the Holy Spirit, wept for his sin, and had flashes of joy upon thoughts of the things of God. Now, if you're a parent, you might remember your own children at the age of six. I don't think any of mine fit into that particular category but that's what they believed and that's what they worked on he entered Christ's College Cambridge which was described as a nest of Puritans by the age of 13 in other words it was full of Puritans Cambridge was still permeated by the memory of William Perkins another strong influence was Richard Zibbs who was a regular preacher at the Trinity Church. 
Zibs attracted people. Now this is important to understand. Who yearned for spiritual edification rather than fancy rhetoric. The emphasis in those days was learning to speak well in rhetoric so that people would say, what a marvellous preacher, what a marvellous sermon. What about the truth? Oh, don't worry about that. Uh, Well, what about the biblical aspect of it? No, don't worry about that either. It's the way words are phrased, the use of the English language, etc., etc. So rhetoric was used to impress people so that they would go from the service glorying the preacher, not glorying God. It was in order to persuade people to impress them with their personality and their words. When aged 14, Thomas was keen to take the Lord's Supper at Easter. His tutor, William Power, kindly said no because of his spiritual immaturity and age, which is an interesting comment when you look back at what his parents wanted him to be at a very young age of six. Well, Thomas felt rejected. Uh, We can understand that. He gets knocked. He's only a teenager. But the result was he gave up praying, gave up reading the scriptures, gave up Puritan literature, and stopped attending Richard Sibbs' sermons and lectures. So he closed the door on what was happening. He had a a reaction, a psychological, if you like, reaction, but certainly he said no. He now aimed to be a popular preacher and embrace the rhetoric of preachers who emphasised style rather than substance and who followed Arminianism emanating from the Netherlands. Now we need to talk about Arminianism, which I'm sure you've heard of. In the early 17th century, there was a theological movement within the Dutch Reformed Church. The theology stemmed from Jacob Arminius, and he lived during that period of the Reformation, or after the Reformation. He was a Calvinist, he followed John Calvin, but, when he put a but there, He left that teaching on several doctrinal beliefs. He reacted against predestination and other doctrines and clashed with Calvinist lecturers at the University of Leiden. His theology was maintained after his death and there were 46 pastors who signed a document called the Remonstrance in 1610 that rejected what was called, we'll come back to this in a minute, supralapsarianism doctrine of predestination and ideas that God's decrees were not eternal but that they were made after and in the light of the fall. Now I don't want to spend 
time on this, but it is seeing the words there, we need to have a, a brief understanding. There was superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism. Superlapsarianism means that God first decreed to save some and condemn others and then decreed the fall, which is the story of Adam. And the work of Christ is a means to that end. Superlapsarianism belief followed the teaching of Thomas Beza, who was in the, the whole mix of the Reformation. Infolipsarianism was the majority of the Calvinists. And they held that God first decreed or permitted the fall. In other words, the fall of Adam, God allowed to happen. And then decreed to save some and condemn others. Now it brings us to the story of the fall. Adam and Eve had a choice. God said you can eat all of the tree, fruit of the trees of the garden but you don't touch that one. And the serpent, whatever form the serpent was, we don't know. Some say it was a snake. Well, I don't know what it was. One day we'll find out. A talking snake would be something. But Eve listened to the wrong word. She had heard what God said, but she listened to a different word which attracted her and God permitted this. So if I'm going to sin, I won't say when you're going to sin, we'll point it on me, when I, if I'm going to sin, who is to blame? Is it God's fault? And the answer is, no, it's my fault if I sin. She listened to the wrong word, the other aspect of this belief, which is scriptural now, we're talking about what's in the Bible, is that Adam did not say a word. Where was he when this happened? The understanding was he was right there as the silent man. He did not say, hang on a sec, Eve, that's not what God said. And so it points out the frailty of human nature. And quite often us men are the last ones to, to get the message. It's not a matter of females against males, but it's a story that shows the subtlety of the evil one that he came to Eve. That was the attraction. So my suggestion is that you could look up a biblical dictionary uh, about these two words, superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism. But if you want something to take away, it is this. God is not a puppet, a puppet master. God is not in heaven making us move like a puppeteer. He doesn't pull the strings and we have to follow. We are responsible. No one else is responsible for our behaviour. 
we ourselves after are. Now, when we were little kids, it was great to be able to blame somebody else. When we're adults, it is wonderful to blame somebody else. Oh, if you knew what I was going through, if you knew my health situation, if you knew, well, I don't know, God does, but we are responsible. So that might do. Now back to the notes. For Arminius, therefore, election was subsequent to grace and is conditional on our response. So God decrees to save all who repent and believe and perish. In other words, Arminius, the doctrine of Arminius is saying, well, God is waiting to see whether you're going to repent. Now, we have to nut out what we believe. It's no good saying, well, this is all too hard, I can't do it. We've all got Bibles, and I have no patience with people who say, oh, I can't understand the Scriptures. It's not because I've been trained in theology that I say that. It's because we need to read and study and go through the Scriptures to discover what it is that God is saying to us. In this belief, the possibility of a true believer finally falling from grace and perishing is not denied. Now, if you're a believer, is there the opportunity for you to perish and fall from grace? And I believe the answer is no. No believer can perish because God keeps us and sustains us no one will ever take them out of my hands. But in this belief, there is no assurance of ultimate salvation. Therefore, God gives sufficient grace so that one may believe on Christ if he will. That's what they're getting at. It's your choice. His will is free. He can believe or he can resist God's grace. Now it is a debate, I'll grant you that. But finally you've got to say, what does the Bible truly say? Arminius is saying that God does not choose anyone, but foresees that some will choose him. Does the Bible say that? The answer for me is an emphatic no. But this is a belief with a Pelagian basis, another big word. A Pelagius was a British, probably an Irish monk, they say. I can understand it more with that if he's Irish. But he was a very strong opponent of Augustine. Augustine, I know you remember the talk that we had a number of years ago on Augustine, but you've probably got the notes at home in the bottom drawer. Augustine lived a pretty wild life. He was uh, prayed for by his mother who was a Christian. His father wasn't a Christian, uh, but he was a dissolute person. He had illegitimate children and uh, lived with uh, a woman, etc., etc., until 
he became a Christian. How did Augustine become a Christian? Well, God was working in his life, but if you remember the story, he heard some children over the fence playing. And one of them said, not in English, of course, but the translation, take up and read. Take up and read. And those words hit Augustine. He picked up his New Testament, which happened to open at Romans, and he read the passage that God had for him. And I didn't put those notes down because uh, you could look it up sometime. And he became a Christian. That was the start of his Christian life. God did the work of grace. Augustine was searching. Yes, he was searching. He was under conviction. But it was God's working in his life that brought him to faith. So there's been that basis, that, that a basic disagreement between Augustine and Pelagius ever since. Well, back to the notes. In 1616, Goodwin graduated from Christ's College with a bachelor's degree and continued his studies at St. Catherine's Hall, Cambridge, three years later. He obtained his master's in 1620 and became a fellow and a lecturer. Some of his associates sought to persuade him that rhetoric and Arminianism were not demonstrating the truth. The preaching of Richard Sibbs and John Preston in the college chapel were affecting his beliefs. As he listened to them, God was working. His interest in Puritanism fluctuated for another 12 months, often rising just before the Lord's Supper. Why did it rise just before the Lord's Supper? Because he was prevented from taking the Lord's Supper when he was a boy and that stayed with him. That conviction was there through all of those years. Just after his 20th birthday, he was converted. When God brought him to a profound conviction of sin. On the afternoon of the 2nd of October, 1620, he and some friends met to enjoy a good time and one of the group convinced the others to attend a funeral. That's one way to have a good time. The preacher was Thomas Bainbridge, who preached on the need for personal repentance. And he preached from Luke chapter 19, verses 41 and 42. In the ESV, which he didn't use, of course, but uh, those verses read this way. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you... Even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. You might say, well, that's a bit of a strange verse for why didn't, why didn't he look up, you must be born again or something like that. Because God uses a variety of scriptures to bring us to faith. It doesn't matter what the verse is. God can use it because it is his inspired word. The whole thing from Genesis to Revelation 
It is all of God's word. And God is not prescribed to have to use a particular verse in order to bring us to believe in faith. And this is the one that was used. Goodwin realised the essential depravity of his heart, his dreadful sins, his averseness to all spiritual good, and his desperate condition that left him exposed to the wrath of God. A few hours later, quote, before God, who after we are regenerate, is so faithful and mindful of his word, that's the way he put it, he received a speedy word of deliverance. Now he received it from Ezekiel 16. Why would God use Ezekiel 16? And Goodwood's going to describe the experience. In particular, verse 6, uh, he said, Live, yea, I said to you, live. Now I want to read a few verses from Ezekiel 16. It is, it is a language that is not literal, but it is true. And again, the ESV. It's a concerning the Lord's faithless bride, his own people. Ezekiel was a prophet, and he's speaking about the people of God here. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Well, in other words, you haven't got a very good beginning, have you? And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor robbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out onto the open field. You were abhorred on this day that you were born. Now, it's a graphic picture. If that was a real baby, it would be a lot of problems. God is talking about his own people. They just cast out because they had cast him out. But it's the next verse that is the key to what we're talking about. And God says, When I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, Live. I said to you in your blood, Live. Why is it repeated? For emphasis. If, if anything in the scriptures are repeated, we need to take notice of it. It's a bit like Jesus saying, Verily, verily, I say unto you. The only time that things were given three times was in Isaiah 6 and in Revelation chapter 4. The words, holy, holy, holy. 
three times, which means not just pay attention, but you jolly well ought to pay attention and do and realise what God is saying. So this is the sort of passage. It is symbolic language, but it is it is truth in the sense that God, through the prophet, is talking about his own people, Israel. And as Thomas Goodwin heard this, it was a word that came to him. As we've got in the notes, God was... God was pleased on the sudden and, as it were, an instant to alter the whole of his former dispensation towards me and said of and to my soul, Yea, live, yea, live, I say, said God. And as he created the world and the matter of all things by a word, so he created and put a new life and spirit into my soul. And so great an alteration was strange to me. Then God took me aside and as it were privately said to me, Do you now turn to me and I will pardon all your sins, though never so many, as I forgave and pardoned my servant Paul and convert you unto me. And this he put in his records called his works, which are listed there. Now it took all of this to get through to him after all these years. After his conversion, Goodwin aligned himself with the theological tradition of Perkins, Bain, Sibbs and Preston. He turned his back on personal fame and resolved to part with all for Christ and make the glory of God the measure of all time to come. Now, one of the things that the Puritans emphasised constantly, we, we talked last week about the fact of the conscience which was emphasised in their preaching, but they also emphasised the glory of God. How often do we hear of the glory of God? Oh, Christmas time. No, but that's just there for the convenience of Christmas. This is something we need to come to grips with as the people of God. It is for the glory of God, never the glory of the church, never our glory, never the glory of anything else as much as we might like, because we're going to leave it all behind. We're not taking anything with us to heaven when we die. So the polished style of the Anglican divines was abandoned for it focused on the preacher. Now I don't often get annoyed, I get disappointed, I'll put it that way. But I get sick and tired over the years of preachers who have to tell stories from the pulpit, if they use a pulpit, which focus on themselves. Uh, they, they tell a story or a joke and the emphasis is upon them. There's no place for that in a sermon. I used to do it, I know. It is the glory of God. He is the one that we're concerned about. And this was the thrust 
of the Puritans. This is why we need to take notice of them and see what our own situation is like today. He adopted the Puritan plain style of preaching which was earnest and pastoral and at times dry but which aimed to give all glory to God. Goodwin spent seven years from 1620 to 27 seeking personal assurance of faith. So it was a struggle for him, the same as you and I have struggles at times. We understand these years as a period of spiritual struggle which any of us may experience. He had numerous letters and conversations with a man named Price, a godly minister of King's Lynn. He came to see his need to, quote, live by faith in Christ and to derive from him life and strength for sanctification, that's holiness, and all comfort and joy through believing. That's what he came to realise. He later said about this time of spiritual struggle, I was diverted from Christ for several years to search only for the signs of grace in me. You see the difference? Looking for the signs instead of looking for Christ. It was almost seven years ere I was taken off to live by faith in Christ and God's free love, which are alike the object of faith. Goodwin finally found rest in Christ alone. His preaching became more Christ-centred and he agreed with Sibs's advice, young man, if you ever would do good, you must preach the gospel and the free grace of God in Christ Jesus. Took him a while, but he finally saw it. Prior to this time in 1625, Goodwin had been licensed to preach. The next year he helped to bring Sibs to St. Catherine's Hall at the university as master. Then in 1628, Goodwin, aged 27, succeeded Sibs as lecturer at Trinity Church and served as vicar from 1632 to 34. However, because he was un unwilling to submit to Archbishop William Lord's Articles of Conformity, now we've talked about, I'm going to talk about Lord in a minute, he was forced to resign his office. Among those converted under his ministry were several who later became influential as Puritan pastors. Through much of the period of the Puritans, Archbishop William Lord was the devil's boy in charge. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, and so let's see a little bit about him. Despite the advances made by Luther, Calvin and others, Goodwin was convinced that the church of his day needed a new or second reformation. He believed that popish worship, ceremonies and doctrine had infiltrated the Church of England, especially with the growing influence of Archbishop William Lord, who was born in the previous century in 1573 and lived until 1645. His death was interesting, which we'll see. Lord's theology 
tutor at Oxford when he was studying was part of a group that was against Puritanism. He wanted an ambitious and a career focused on ambition. He officiated at the coronation of King Charles I, became Archbishop of Canterbury in 1633. His theology was influenced by Arminius. That's why we spend a bit of time talking about him. He loved ceremony and harmonious liturgy, opposed nonconformity and was intolerant of opposition. He attempted to force uniformity in worship, insisted on conformity by congregations in Ireland, Scotland and the American colonies. Riots in Edinburgh when the Scots repulsed King Charles's attempt to impose his authority by mission, military force was known as the Bishop's Wars in 1639 and 40. Lord was finally imprisoned in the Tower of London. Three years he was there with a trial before the House of Lords and in 1645 he was beheaded. Well, that wouldn't happen today, I presume. Uh, it'd be great to get the front page of the paper, wouldn't it? Archbishop of Canterbury beheaded, but it did then. Goodwin adopted independent principles of church government and in 1634 to 39 he was a separatist preacher in London and then took refuge in the Netherlands. With Lord impeached, so we're going back a few years, with Lord impeached, Parliament invited the nonconformists to return and Goodwin was appointed a member of the Westminster Assembly, preached before Parliament appointed a lecturer at Oxford, became president of Magdalen College while John Owen was the dean of Christ College and he was a close advisor to Cromwell. In 1638 he married Elizabeth Prescott but she died in the 1640s leaving him with one daughter. In 1649 he married Mary Hammond who was 17 described as being wise beyond her years. He was 49. Two sons died on a voyage to the East Indies and two daughters died in infancy. During Goodwin's years at Oxford, he and John Owen lectured on Sunday afternoons to students and both were chaplains to Cromwell. Spiritual fervour spread. Matthew Henry... Uh, Philip Henry rather, Matthew Henry's father, attended Oxford. Henry wrote, Serious godliness, many scholars used to meet for prayer. But 1662 was on the horizon. You'll remember that from last week. That was the great get out of the place, the great ejection. When dying, aged 80, Goodwin's son wrote of his godly father, in all the violence of his fever, whatever the fever was, I don't know, he discoursed with that strength of faith and assurance of Christ's love and that holy admiration of free grace 
with that joy in believing and such thanksgiving and praises as he extremely moved and affected all who heard him. He rejoiced in the thoughts that he was dying and going to have a full and uninterrupted communion with God. I'm going, said he, to the three persons with whom I have had communion. They have taken me. I did not take them. That's the Puritan belief, the reformers, reformers' belief. I could not have imagined I should ever have had such a measure of faith in this hour. Christ cannot love me better than he doth. I think I cannot love Christ better than I do. I am swallowed up in God. With this assurance of faith and fullness of joy, his soul left this world. Goodwin was buried near other Puritans in Bunhill Fields. His epitaph written in Latin, Bunhill Fields, was the... Uh, I've never had the chance to visit there, but that's the, the, the old um, Puritan burial ground in London. In addition to the above account, he was also a prolific author and editor. Later preachers influenced by Goodwin's writings include John Cotton, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield and John Gill. Alexander White, who came later but was a great preacher, wrote, I have read no other author so much and so often and I continue to read him to this day as if I had never read him before. So let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that your Spirit is the one who teaches us, who brings us to Christ, who reminds us and shows us the glory of your person. You who are Father, Son and Holy Spirit, and our Father, we thank you for the lives of these men of so long ago, that they can teach us. It's not that we copy them, it's not that we follow them. We follow Christ, whom they follow. And we pray for one another this morning, that as we come to this, this date of resurrection, uh, which is celebrated next Monday, Resurrection Reformation, Reformation Sunday, 505 years since Luther nailed those theses on the castle door at Wittenberg. Oh, Father, we thank you for men like him who were determined to, to seek the truth and to follow it. And for these Puritans who also learned from those Reformation saints, may we also learn as we think of our life today, our churches today. We thank you for what you are doing and we pray that we will follow you, that we won't get caught up in trying to make things happen, but we will learn that it is all by grace, not by works. We thank you and bless you in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.